dead, sweetheart. Mm -hmm. Mommy, Mace, they're dead. I know, honey, I know. I'm scared. So am I. But we have to be strong now. Do you understand that? and welcome back to Best Forgotten Movies, the podcast all about the films that never made it out of Jabba's Palace. I'm Gareth Green and joining me as always is my full-time co-host and part-time master of evil, Andrew Phillips. <laughs> I'm done. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> And in the last episode of our Star Wars season, we're casting our gaze back a long, long time ago to a galaxy far, far away as we're reviewing a legitimate, totally canon Star Wars film. But which of the Star Wars films can be considered forgotten? I know many would like to forget Attack of the Clones, but let's head over to the trailer for our answers. On a far distant world of enchanting beauty, a family of lost travelers find shelter and friendship among the Ewoks, peaceful guardians of the forest. But the peace is shattered. An evil storm sweeps the planet Endor, threatening the Ewoks' very existence. Run fast, run! And a courageous Earth child is left orphaned, hunted by the cruel armies of an insatiable warlord. All I want is the power. Don't be foolish, do what he says. It's a breathtaking adventure that soars to extremes of heroism and treachery. There's no escape for you, my little one. But there is hope. A shipwrecked adventurer and his speedy sidekick join forces with the Ewoks. Their mission? Penetrate a fortress of death and rescue their friend. It's a desperate scheme that unleashes the rage of a demented tyrant. From the creator of Star Wars comes a dazzling adventure, a timeless fable of courage and conflict, of bravery, innocence, and unspeakable evil, featuring Wilfred Brimley and the visual mastery of George Lucas. Take a journey to the far reaches of your imagination. Ewoks, the battle for Endor. Coming to your family from MGM UA Home Video. If you like the worst aspects of Return of Jedi, then you'll love Caravan of Courage, an Ewok adventure, starring everyone's favourite exploited little person, Warwick Davis. <laughs> when a family spacecraft crashes on the forest moon of Endor, Mace and Sindel find themselves separated from their parents and desperately lost. That is, until they meet a race of cheap Star Wars merchandise, better known as Ewoks. With the help of these fairy warriors, Mace and Sindel attempt to locate their parents on a completely alien planet. And so begins a great adventure to add growth to Lucasfilm's failing stocks. <laughs> so, Andy, at this point, normally I would say that you nominated Caravan of Courage <laughs> for today's episode of Best Forgotten Movies. But in fact, that was not the episode no, you nominated. We've made a bit of a boo-boo today. Yeah. We've both watched an Ewok film, but we've each watched the wrong one yeah, that so the other person thought we were watching. So, Gareth has watched Caravan of Courage, yeah. which is the first one. And the one that I originally nominated, which we had on the list, but I don't think you had. I didn't have the list. <laughs> uh, I don't know how we've managed this. But basically, I've watched the second one, which is about for Endor. So we're yes. actually going to have to do both films today because we've not seen either one. I've never seen Caravan of Courage and yeah, you've never I, seen I've never Battle, seen for, Battle Endor. for Endor. I just had the briefest flick through it moments ago just to get an idea of what the film was about. Yeah. <laughs> so this is really going to pose quite a um, challenge for us yeah. in this episode. But I think what we just said before was, fuck it, let's do both. Yes. And um, what we're going to do is each person's going to take ownership of their own film and uh, the other person's going to ask questions about them. Yeah. I think first we can talk about them as a, as a pair because they are really a pair. Above all, I just can't believe that I watched Caravan of Courage for nothing. Yeah. Like, not, not only once, but twice. Yeah. Fortunately, these films are tied together quite yeah. significantly. Yeah. So you can't really discuss one without discussing the other. Yeah. So at least between us, we have the whole story. We do, yeah. Anyway, anybody that listens to Best Forgotten Movies knows that here we like to provide a little bit of context before we delve into the films. So I have a little bit of background on Caravan of Courage. 
and you have a little bit of background on Battle of Endor. Yes. But before we actually start talking about those films, really, our story begins with the Star Wars Holiday Special. It does. That's the first made-for-TV movie, or, well, made-for-TV event Mm. that is based in the Star Wars universe, and it's one in which George Lucas had zero creative control. Yeah. He's very much attempting to bury it these days. Yeah, and it certainly was an event. Yeah. A traumatic (laughs) event for all involved. And imagine a lot of people listening have actually seen the Star Wars Holiday Special. It's one of those things that is of curiosity to most geeky people. Yeah, it's a true oddity. Yes. And it has to be seen to be believed. Yeah, it's almost like a rites of passage for a lot of people. (laughs) You're not a proper nerd unless you've seen the Star Wars Holiday Special. Exactly. And sat through it all the way through. And so insanely awful. Complete with adverts. (laughs) In a strange way, these second two Ewok films are actually the second and third holiday special of Star Wars. But they're obviously very, very different to that. Well, originally, George Lucas intended to actually call these two made-for-TV movies the Ewok Holiday Specials, or at least Caravan of Courage, anyway, from my research. Fortunately, that change went on because I think he wanted to divorce it completely from the Star Wars Holiday Special. (laughs) That way, nobody... Yeah, exactly, yeah. (laughs) But yeah, so on the Ewok movies, George really sought complete creative control since he had seen how wrong it could get with tv studios yeah with the holiday special he's seen what can happen so this was very much his baby almost mm. and originally caravan of courage was intended to only be an hour-long special yeah and it was abc studios that wanted to extend that runtime so it ended up being a two-hour event yeah or a 90 minute long film yeah if, if you're watching it on youtube yeah like we did <laughs> <laughs> other video services are available yes <laughs> Yeah, and I think also with these specials as well, because they were intended for TV, they had a an obviously limited budget. Mm-hmm. And I know that for the first film, they had about $3 million, which even for a TV special at the time was quite a lot of money. But for a 90-minute film, it was quite a small budget, really. And yeah, I mean, that's $3 million in 1983? Uh, yeah, 83, 84, when yeah, they did it. It's an incredible amount of money, really. Yeah. But um, yeah, it's significantly lower than, say, the Star Wars films. Yes, yeah. I think Lucas himself thought that this would be a good place for the newer employees of his company to prove themselves, but also it would be a good way for them to experiment with new techniques and some old-fashioned movie-making techniques as well within these films. I think that comes to fruition a lot more in the second one, but you can see them starting out with the first one. The look of both films is very similar, Mm. and you can see that they are playing about with techniques that are one foot in the grave even in the 80s, which is like the stop-motion side of things. There are a lot of uh, stop-motion creatures in both films. I think from what I saw of Battle of Endor, the uh, effects of the creatures are better than they are in Caravan of Courage. But yeah, you can see that it's really a rite of passage for all these new filmmakers coming Mm. through. And one of the first people that George Lucas actually got involved with this Ewok special is Joe Johnston, yeah. who was a key concept artist throughout the entirety of the Star Wars trilogy. Yeah, he designed many of the spacecraft. And who's gone on to be something of an accomplished director since. We've actually covered one of his films on this yeah, podcast, yeah, The Wolfman. Mm-hmm. So there is a style that the films do look quite interesting, and you can see that there's a combination of old blood and new blood involved in the making of mm-hmm. these films. It's a battleground where people cut their teeth. Yeah, you've got other people involved as well. You've got, like, Phil Tippett, obviously, because of the stop-motion effects. Of course. Yeah, so these were intended to be broadcast as Thanksgiving movies. They're Mm -hmm. the ABC Sunday night film. And, yeah, they were both broadcast roughly on on the same date, a year after each other as well. Yeah. Without really saying much about Caravan of Courage, because I don't really want to get into the film just yet, so it did come out and it wasn't the success that George Lucas has hoped in terms of the quality. And that spurred them on with Battle for Endor. Yeah, Battle for Endor is informed by the results of Caravan. But I think the thing we probably need to talk about as well, in addition to all this, is the Ewoks themselves, because they are so central to these films, and that is the primary purpose of these films being in existence, is because they wanted to further promote the brand of the Ewoks, which was rather popular in the early 80s. Well, it's still popular now. Mm. I've just come back from Disneyland and in fact Ewoks in every single Disney store. Yeah. But yeah, I think that's one of the questions I really want to ask and I think that this episode's really going to be centred around is do these films work as films or are they nothing more than corporate attempts to sell merchandise? And that's something I just want you to bear in mind while we talk about these separate films. I mean, can a film work as both? That's something I really want us to bear in mind. Yeah. So it's definitely worth going back to Jedi 
because this is where these lovable creatures yes. come from. It's their origins. Yeah, and where they first appeared. It's strange because they weren't originally intended to be Ewoks no. in Return of the Jedi originally. The action was supposed to take place on a Wookiee planet. Yeah, it was meant to take place on, uh, was it Kashyyyk? Kashyyyk, yes, yeah. that's the one. Yeah, this is a major source of disappointment from a lot of Star Wars fans that this never happened because the original plan was for this whole Death Star 2 battle to take place around Kashyyyk and have the Wookiees be the primitive culture that was meant to come up against the technologically advanced empire Mm -hmm. and defeat them. And if you read in the J.W. Rinsler book, The Making of Return of the Jedi, you will see that they were coming up with different concepts for Kashyyyk and then along the lines changed their minds about using the Wookiees. And the general consensus seems to be that George Lucas ruled that the Wookiees would be too technologically advanced at this point in Star Wars timeline in order to really be a a clear contrast between them and the Empire. Yeah. So they basically had to come up with a new creature to um, be that role. So they came up with the Ewoks. So the idea with the Ewoks is that they would be the opposite of the Wookiees. So obviously automatically they're going to be very short because the Wookiees are really tall. Mm-hmm. They're modeling a couple of different things. I mean, the main thing, which is obviously some people might find quite funny, that one of the major inspirations for the Ewoks was the Viet Cong and how their guerrilla warfare was able to undermine the efforts of the US military in the Vietnam War. It's a thing that a lot of films of the 80s played with, yeah, really, yeah. taking this whole idea of a technologically advanced culture going up against a primitive yeah. species. I yeah. mean, we see it replayed with aliens as well. Yeah, the name of Ewok is actually derived from the Native American Miwok, or Miwok. I'm not sure how you pronounce that, but it's actually a Native American tribe that was indigenous to the Redwood Forest, which is actually where they filmed both Return of the Jedi and its accompanying spin-off films. Mm -hmm. It has that tied into it as well. And also the language that they used was lovingly named Ewokese, and that's based on um, Kalmyke which is a Russian language. Yes. A lot of the dialect is based off an interview that Ben Burke conducted with somebody who spoke this language, and all the words were derived from things that she'd said. So it's like a language based on hearsay. Oh, right, got you. They'd create words based on what they heard. Mm. Obviously, another thing as well is that when they were making Jedi, Kenny Baker was meant to be playing the role of Wicket, which is the lead Ewok in the film that helps Princess Leia. And obviously he became ill whilst they were shooting that segment of the film. And so they had to find a replacement. And this is where Warwick Davis comes into it. 12 years old, was yeah, it? Yeah, like time? 11 or 12, 12 yeah. something like that. He was hired as an extra. And uh, yeah, he ended up taking over the part. And from there on, he becomes quite a key player in Luke's film. Yeah, he's become an icon all of himself, really, Warwick Davis. Yeah, yeah. I mean, bar Kenny Baker and I suppose Jack Purvis, to a lesser extent, he's one of the other key little people in Lucasfilm. Yeah, he is, yeah. Especially now, because obviously because of his age, he's been able to have a lot longer career in that aspect Mm, as well. And a quite varied career as well. Definitely, yeah. And I always did appreciate that following from Return of the Jedi, not only did he work on the two Ewok movies, but he went on to star in Willow as well, Yeah, which is another George Lucas-produced film directed by Ron Howard. Yeah, it's weird to think about this, that the two Ewok films, in a way, are almost the experimental testing ground for a lot of the techniques and ideas that they would put forward in Willow. I think the author, John Baxter, described... Battle for Endor in particular as a dry run for Willow. Yeah, watching Caravan of Courage, my mind was brought back to Willow several times and I didn't know that information that it was really a dry run for it. Yeah, and so obviously the Ewoks appeared in Return of the Jedi and you either love them or hate them. What is your opinion of the Ewoks? I mean, I really like them as a kid. That's their target audience anyway. Yeah. Yeah, and as the years gone by, I mean, my love for them has decreased, but unlike a lot of Star Wars fans, I don't hold them responsible for the fact that Return of the Jedi is a lesser film than the first two Star Wars films. Yeah. Because I think when you look at it as a whole, Return of the Jedi has many more problems than the Ewoks, and I feel that they've unfairly been branded as a corporate cash-in. Yeah. And the sole reason why that film is not as good as the other two, because there's many, many other problems with that film, including things that a lot of Star Wars fans like, including the whole Jabba's Palace section, which is completely superfluous to the rest of the film. Oh, and yeah. obviously the more soap opera elements of the film, that which are George Lucas moments there. Uh, mm-hmm. Actually, George Lucas-directed moments as well. Yeah. You can really tell the difference between George Lucas's style of directing and Richard Marquand's. 
And I still, in a way, like the idea that a primitive race can overcome something like the Empire, although it does stretch it quite a lot in terms of credibility. Like I said, I don't hate them either. I mean, they're okay in themselves. And I think a lot of the criticism just comes down to what they look like rather than what they represent. Yeah. Because, yeah, they do have that teddy bearish look. And uh, the other thing I found out today when I was researching the Ewoks is the facial structure of the Ewoks is actually not modeled on a bear. It's actually modeled on a dog Mm -hmm. and a particular kind of dog, which is the um, Brussels Griffin, which is like a breed of toy dog from brussels from yeah. belgium it has a very flat face and it's very hairy yeah and has it's, very large eyes it's like a mix between a miniature schnauzer and a pug it's yeah. got a pug face but yeah. the hair of a schnauzer we looked at some pictures of them before and you can really tell oh, where yeah, they took it from definitely and uh, yeah this is all developed with Stuart freeborn who came up with the final design and that's another thing that we're going to probably going to talk about as well with the blu-ray release of the star wars <laughs> trilogy which have a lot more problems than they ever had before mm-hmm. but one of the things that they kind of make better is uh the ewoks blinking yes i know this is something that's particularly disturbed you gareth <laughs> yeah yeah i think we're going to get into <laughs> that a little bit later but um yeah it certainly disturbed me the look of the ewoks but i'm kind of put off by the idea that the Ewoks, as an image, are an example of exactly where Return of the Jedi went wrong, like as an icon of all of the film's problems. I don't really agree with that, and I don't really see that. I really loved the Ewoks when I was a kid. Nowadays, not so much. Yeah. I think that the film would have worked better with the Wookiees, since it seemed the previous two films had built towards that. I didn't think Return of the Jedi really needed this entire new race yeah. to be introduced at the 11th hour. Mm. Because even in Return of the Jedi, they are introduced very, very late in a day. And that's mainly because of the whole Jabba's Palace section, yeah, yeah. which is an entire first 40 minutes of the film and doesn't really add up so much. No, no, it's a 35-minute long pre-title sequence. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> it's if Indiana Jones started with a 40-minute boulder chase. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Before we even got introduced to the Ark of the Covenant. Yeah, yeah. But even though I think it should have been the Wookiees, I don't really have much of a problem with the Ewoks. I think the film could have still worked as well as the previous films with the Ewoks. Yeah. But it's because of the filmmaking that it doesn't and because of the writing that it doesn't. Yeah. I mean, to take two separate examples, one from Empire Strikes Back and one from Return of Jedi, and to compare them, in Empire you've got this revelation of Darth Vader being Luke Skywalker's father. And it's this moment of shock and excitement. Yeah, it's visceral. Yeah, it's visceral and it's emotional. Mm. And you compare that to the scene in which it's revealed to Luke Skywalker by Obi-Wan that Leia's his sister and possibly another Jedi. Mm. It's so dull and lifeless and delivered so flatly. It's it's delivered like a soap opera. They're both sat down on a log and it's in such a flat image. Yeah. There's no excitement there. Yeah, we've got the seeds of the prequels there and then. Sitting down on a couch discussing something in a flat and uninteresting way with camera A, camera B, and George sat with his coffee. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) That's basically what's happening. It's in those moments, in these moments in Return of Jedi, that you can really see the prequels and you can see the start of the filmmaking that would be the prequels' downfall. Mm. Even in the blocking, it's it's blocked very much like a soap opera. There's a lot of like, when we think of that scene on the rope bridge, when uh, Luke and Leia are talking and they're like, turns to camera. I almost expect Leia at one point to like, bite her fist in a very kind of like yeah. soapish way yeah it's yeah. very made for tv and there's some really flat dialogue there as oh, well awfully flat it's just yeah. pure exposition it's mm. we got to get this shit out mm. but for me that's where the problems yeah. of return of jedi lie not with the ewoks yeah. themselves and it's, it's almost weird in a way to think that prior to episode one the ewoks were the jar jar binks of the star yeah. wars trilogy and obviously jar jar completely trumped them because obviously the main thing that jar jar didn't do was that he appealed to no one, whereas at least the Ewoks appealed to the kids. Yeah. Because <laughs> Jar Jar didn't appeal to anybody. At the end of the day, we've just said something ourselves, which was, as kids, we love the Ewoks. Yeah. And I, I, I really did. Yeah. As I've got older, I've fell out of love with the Ewoks yeah, in, yeah. A, in, a, in a relatively large way, but I still don't dislike them. No. I don't feel anything for them, really. No. Although, in the same sense, you can kind of see that this is the first race of aliens that was really developed to sell yes as such so there is a difference there that um unlike a lot of the other star wars creatures which are a natural byproduct of the story they were trying to tell you can definitely sense that this was something that was a little bit more calculated well when star wars first came out they didn't have any merchandising ready no because film merchandise wasn't really such a big thing these figurines and such like that that when the first star wars came out which is now titled a new hope 
The only thing that you could actually buy for figurines was really a cardboard stand-in. You'd yeah. buy the box, yeah. and you'll get the figurines later, yeah, yeah. and you'd have cardboard cutouts of the characters. <laughs> because they had nothing ready. And then you compare and contrast this to Return of the Jedi, where they are making characters to be merchandise. Yeah. This film's been made to sell merchandise. And I guess these two Ewok movies have as well. That's where the need to make these films have come from. Yeah, because I mean, even if you look at the Kenner Pally toy, toy lines... It wasn't really until Empire that the figure and the the action figure and the the toy line really took off in a big way in terms of them developing uh, lots of different play sets and ships and different figures and all the minor characters as well. That didn't really come along properly until Empire. And obviously when Jedi came along, that was even more elaborated upon. You can really tell as well because... I went to a Star Wars convention the other day and they had obviously the stalls out and most of the boxes and things that you could see, most of them came from Jedi yeah. and also a bit from Empire, but hardly anything from the Star Wars era because there just wasn't enough stuff there. It's also exemplified in the Ewok movies as well because we've got things like, obviously the two movies that are there, yeah. but around the same time there was a fourth line of figures which was called Power of the Force. Uh, which has nothing to do with the one in the 90s, but they had a special gold coin or a bronze coin in the packet that you could collect. So it was an even more of a marketing ploy. <laughs> and that was just about when Star Wars, the Star Wars craze was about to wind down. So that's kind of the last of the classic action figure line. But um, you could really tell because obviously that was released to time with the Ewok films. And also, the other thing we've not mentioned is that there was a, an Ewok TV series, an Ewok cartoons yes. TV series that was made and released just after the broadcast of the last film that we're going to review here today. So that was broadcast in 86, 87. Mm-hmm. They were definitely a calculated marketing decision. You definitely made aware that they were really trying to appeal to the kids with this one. Yeah. And I guess one of the things that we do have to say about these two Ewok movies is that they are made for kids. Yeah. And we really have to approach them as that. They're not the same kind of grand adventures that the Star Wars films are. They're kids' films. Yeah. And they're made to be kids' films. Little kids, boys' own adventures. Well, not the second one, maybe, but the first one, certainly. Yeah, and I think that's what we really need to judge it against, is like other kids' films, especially kids' films of this period. Yes. Because they really are just children's fantasy adventures. And it would be unfair to even compare it to Return of the Jedi, Mm. despite it taking many elements from Return of the Jedi. It's working on a different scale. Yeah, they're much smaller stories. Yeah. So I think the next thing we really want to do is actually talk about the films themselves. Yes, definitely. And uh, obviously first up is going to be Caravan of Courage. Yes. Subtitled An Ewok Adventure. An Ewok Adventure. Yeah, which is the 1984 film. And uh, this is the one that you watched mistakenly. Yes, this is the one that I watched twice. (laughs) And what a joy it was. And we've obviously talked a little bit about the origins of this film and that it was meant to be an hour special and then ended up being extended. Do you think that this aspect of the uh, production history shows in the film? (laughs) Yes. Oh, God, yes. Uh, The film is really crippled by the fact that it's essentially a 20-minute short that's been stretched over 90 minutes. Yeah, yeah. And there's not much really that happens. The Mm. story is about these two kids. uh, Well, it's about a family spacecraft that crashes on the forest moon of Endor, obviously. And the kids are separated from their parents. The parents are actually kidnapped by a giant monster that's roaming the planet. Right. And the kids somehow manage to evade this monster and meet the Ewoks. And then so begins their adventure to find out what happened to their parents with the help of these Ewoks. But really, there's not much that happens along the way in terms of this adventure. The characters that they meet are so small and insignificant, and the world itself is barely explored. So I was really left thinking, like, what was this fucking film about? (laughs) Yeah, yeah. The other thing, the other interesting thing of note is that the director of this particular film, who is... John Corti. Yeah, it was actually... um, Lucas's next door neighbor in Marin County. Oh right, so that's 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 where it's come from <laughs> yeah. because I looked at his IMDb page and he hadn't really done much. He'd done a few like Christmas specials, mm. but he hadn't done anything in terms of film. And it actually really shows mm. because there's not much that's interesting happening within the frame. No, and uh, I think this is part of that initiative to introduce new people to the Lucasfilm yeah. company. And obviously, this was one of the things is that we got new directors, obviously for yeah. better or worse. So this is obviously a worse one. And the fact that it's got the likes of Joe Johnston Mm. um, working on the production design of the film. Uh, Because a lot of the Ewok world and a lot of the look of Star Wars is owed to Joe Johnston and his designs. Yeah. Yeah. Um, So much so, in fact, that he actually wrote and illustrated a separate Ewok kids book. 
Yeah. That was uh, published around the same time. Mm. But I, I can't help but think, like, why didn't he just hand him the reins? Let him make this kind of film. Yeah, it seems odd as well. And it'll seem even odder when we go on to talk about the second film, which is, in a weird way, partially directed by Joe Johnston. Yes. Yeah, it seems weird that they wouldn't hire someone like that to come in and take over the reins, especially when he had so much experience in the Star Wars mm. world already. But it just seems like as if this other guy fit into that new model of what George was going for at the time in terms of hiring new people and getting new blood into the studio and into the company, making yeah. these uh, what he termed experimental films, yeah. <laughs> which we'll ne- probably never see these mysterious experimental films that George is always going on about. To be honest, George Lucas is always talking about making films where nothing happens, where the camera <laughs> is static and... He fancies himself a bit of an Andy Warhol, really. And this is probably the closest he's ever gotten to that because (laughs) nothing happens in this film. Is this George Lucas doing that to the Star Wars universe? it is. It is. (laughs) This is his ultimate expression of that. It's just a lot of long shots and silence a lot of the time as well. There's some nattering between Ewoks. Also, there's this... um, the inclusion of narration, yeah, which yeah. is obviously trying to make it seem like some kind of David Attenborough-like documentary. Yeah, that's like a storybook feel to it as well. I have seen a few bits and pieces of the film. But it doesn't actually add anything to the no. film itself. And it, in fact, it gets in the way. Mm. When it first started, I thought, oh, are they setting this up as like a mock documentary? <laughs> and, and Because that's how the yeah. narration feels like. It's like, ah, here we see little Wicked as he goes looking for these children and yeah. all this stuff like that. It, What's it adding to the film? Yeah. But yeah, it, it just seems like they've taken this George Lucas idea that he had for an Ewok adventure and just stretched it so long and so thin. Yeah. It's, it's boring. It's dull. Yeah. So yeah, my first question was going to be, did you enjoy it? Was it fun? But I think we've already <laughs> already come to that conclusion. Yeah, it, it wasn't much fun, really. No. It's like chewing a brick, really. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, maybe I'm being too harsh. There are a couple of moments where it works well. There's a couple of creatures. Uh, the big bad of the film, for instance, is essentially a a rancor, but not as good-looking and more kind of gorilla-like. Right, okay. But he's got the size of a rancor, so you've got a lot of these shots where it's, it's dwarfing the characters. Yeah. That creature himself... It looks half decent, mm. I would say. It's not It's not exactly going to set the world on fire, but it looks threatening. Mm. And I would say, like many things in this film, we don't really see enough of it. Yeah. It's like an end-of-level boss more than anything. Mm. And I'd say that's the, the only aspect of the film that I really liked was that creature, and even that's not... You don't really get to see much of that. Yeah. I'd say for a film that was intended to explore this Ewok world... It just provides you with a few crumbs and a a few ideas that it could go off and really flesh out, but it never does. Mm. It's almost like they didn't have the budget or even the know-how to go off and and do this on a TV level. Mm. And I kept thinking to myself, why didn't they just make it a film with an A-list crew and an A-list cast and really make it an A-list film? Yeah. Like Willow. Yeah. So, no, I didn't really enjoy it that much. No, no. (laughs) My third question, because I think we've talked about the filmmaking of it as well, what are the performances like in the film? Uh, they're neither here nor there, really. The parents are in it a very small amount, and they don't make much of an impression. The film is primarily concerned with these two kids, which is uh, one's called Mace and one's called Sindel. He is, in fact, our first character in the Star Wars series that's called Mace. Yes. Before Samuel L. Jackson's <laughs> Mace Windu. And I would have actually preferred this film if that character had been played by Samuel Jackson, <laughs> by a 30-something Samuel Jackson. <laughs> So, but kept all the rest of the casting and the dialogue the same. Yeah. So you'd have this like typically white family, <laughs> and then Samuel Jackson there as the kid. Yeah, it made it made an interesting comedy. Oh, definitely. <laughs> this would be an instant classic if that was the case. What but, do you mean I'm not your motherfucking father? <laughs> I'd say the one thing about it that really needs to be talked about in terms of the performances is Warwick Davis. Yeah. And. Even as a 12-year-old or 13-year-old or however old he is at this point, he is quite young. But um, his character, Wicker, even in Return of Jedi, the performance that he gives that character in terms of uh, its physical performance, I don't know, he's always been endearing. He's, oh, yeah. He's, like, so childlike and, and like, naive almost. Mm. He always comes across as the most innocent of the Ewoks and just by the way that he moves. Mm. And I think Warwick Davis gives that character a, a lot of depth with very little to work with. Yeah. I know in the in one of the Star Wars documentaries when Warwick Davis was describing how he first thought of playing Wicket, 
I think he was just watching the movements of a dog. Yeah. It might have even been quite a small dog or a puppy in terms of, you know, how it oh, tilts yeah, its head yeah. side to side when it's looking at things and how it explores. It's, it's when it's, it's thinking. World. It's his yeah. thinking stance. And uh, yeah, he modeled a lot of that on dogs in terms of dogs' behavior, which is how you get that quality. And yeah, he does convey that endearing feeling. Yeah, it's, it's like there's a childlike wonder about him. Yeah. And, and it's that thing that you do see in dogs. Yeah. Where there's a wonder about him where they're trying to figure things out. And it's cute. You can't help but look at it and go, oh. Yeah. But <laughs> the one thing that I don't really like about the Ewoks <laughs> themselves is their um, unblinking nature. Yeah. It um, <laughs> makes me think of Hannibal Lecter. Yeah, they're serial killer Lambs. eyes. Yeah, it's, it's serial killer eyes. Like when Anthony <laughs> Hopkins talks about playing Hannibal Lecter, he's like, mm. oh, in every every single scene, I had to make sure that I couldn't blink. Yeah. Because I wanted to have this unfaltering gaze. It's like, that's what the Ewoks have. Yeah. They have serial killers. Look at them. So anytime <laughs> it's this close-up and it's just... just piercing unblinking gaze i can't help but look away yeah and that's something that they went on to fix with the blu-ray release yeah i can see why so many people have said but why yeah because there are so many problems with uh, these films in terms of technical problems that could be fixed mm. and yet they, they do spend their money on things like making the ewoks blink yeah but i can't help but think why didn't they just do that at the time yeah and obviously they, they go about ruining entire scenes yes yeah. as well as in uh, jedi rocks and uh, the infamous oh the no, no. Yeah. one of the loveliest star wars scenes of all time and they totally balls it up with- why spend money on really kind of like undoing classic scenes like oh, that yeah. when you could actually spend money on just tweaking the technical side of things if you want to improve a film that's where it should be improved yeah God knows what goes on in George's mind. I mean, I don't really agree with going back and revisiting these films and and touching them up in these ways. Um, I, I don't really agree with that because I think films are products of their time. And he's definitely touching them up in that he way. He is. <laughs> it makes me think of that South Park episode with the raping Indiana Jones. <laughs> oh, brutal. But yeah, at the end of the day, I just don't know why they just didn't make the Ewoks blink in the first place. No, Because no. it's the only thing that makes them artificial to me. I really like the performance of them, even from the likes of Tony Pope plays another one of the Ewoks, mm-hmm. and that comes through really well too. But um, I, it's, it's the only thing, this unblinking nature, that makes them look like teddy bears. Yeah. It makes them look like they just belong on some kid's bed somewhere. Yeah, or like Rainbow or something yeah, like that. Yeah, exactly, yeah. They look like the Rainbow Bear. Yeah. <laughs> uh. <laughs> What conclusions can you gather out of Caravan of Courage, seeing as we've gone so in-depth on this cinematic <laughs> gem? Well, I'd say it's not really worth watching. No. <laughs> it's not really that enjoyable. And the question that I wanted to ask is, does it work as more than just a corporate attempt to sell toys? And the yeah. answer is no. And the thing is, I think a film can work as both. Yeah. Return of the Jedi is a film that just about works as both. And so is Empire Strikes Back. Mm-hmm. I think toys and merchandise should really be a byproduct of a film and not really the intention of a film. Mm. And this very much feels like just an attempt to keep the Ewoks in the public eye yeah. so they can continue selling toys that little bit longer. Yeah. And there's not much else to the film. There's not much that happens that really justifies its existence. There are a couple of cool ideas in there that are just hidden, but they stretch so thin. And uh, for so long that you you don't care by the end of it. Mm. So my conclusion is it's not really worthy of the Star Wars moniker. It's not really worthy of the Ewok moniker, really, even. And it's not a good film. It can be skipped entirely. Yeah. Which brings us to the sequel. Yes. Which is Battle for Endor. Yes. And that is the film that you watched for this episode. And the film that I was supposed to watch, (laughs) but just did not. Yeah, because this is the one that I recommended. So first up, the first question I want to ask is, did you enjoy The Battle for Endor, an Ewok adventure? I did, actually. I actually thought it was a nice little film on the whole. Yeah. And I actually nominated this one because I saw this film must have been 1993, 1994, something like that. Yeah. And um, yeah, I just saw this on the video shelf. I'd never heard of it before. And obviously at this time in the early 90s, I was mad on Star Wars. Fortunately, I managed to buy a lot of Star Wars toys, like the vintage Star Wars toys, when they were about 50p for a figure. Yeah. Not like 15 quid now (laughs) that you'd pay. And um, yeah, I saw this and um, I think in a way when I was a kid, I was probably a little bit disappointed in it because it didn't have that many Star Warsy things in it apart from the Ewoks themselves. Yeah. Because they're definitely more along the lines of fantasy. Yeah, more along that Willow 
Yes, it is. Definitely. There's probably a bit more Star Wars in this one than there was in the other one, though, in the caravan. Yeah. Well, Caravan of Courage doesn't have much of anything in it. <laughs> no, no. But when we were thinking about doing this Star Wars-related trilogy of films, it just popped up in my mind because it was actually a genuine Lucasfilm Star Wars-related yeah. film that had actually been forgotten because it's not really talked about that much. I think that's something we have to say about these films that we really haven't established until now, which is both of them are genuinely forgotten films. We don't even have to justify them by saying, oh yes, they're famously forgotten. Mm. These films are entirely overlooked by generations of Star Wars fans now. Especially in America, they were broadcast once on ABC on the days they were meant to be broadcast on. Yeah, They never really had any kind of real presence outside of their original TV lifespan. So, yeah, they've definitely slipped along the wayside, especially since Disney took over and they rendered these non-canon films. Mm-hmm. Uh, they now reside under the Star Wars Legends banner, which means that they're neither expanded universe films or <laughs> official canon films. So they're in this weird limbo. Yeah, it's no man's land. Yeah, I just thought, I thought it'd be a good one to do because um, in contrast to Caravan... This is more of a proper film. Yeah. This is more of an effort to make a film about Ewoks or a film set on Endor. And this film benefits a lot from following Caravan of Courage. And most definitely because the directors of Battle for Endor didn't like Caravan of Courage and they actually told George Lucas so. Shock horror. (laughs) I mean, this is probably the last time... George Lucas has rather been told that something that he made was shit uh, (laughs) by someone in his employ or someone related to him because um, they actually got hired based on the fact that they thought that Caravan of Courage was disappointing and slight. Basically all the things that you were saying. Yeah. The directors of this film are a team of brothers. Not the Coen brothers, unfortunately, (laughs) but uh, we've got uh, Jim and Ken Wheat, who um, later wrote Pitch Black, The Fly 2. One of them co-wrote Nightmare on Elm Street 4. They also, in 1994, they wrote a TV movie sequel to Hitchcock's The Birds, which is another Alan Smithy film. (laughs) It is meant to be one of the worst TV movies of all time. Oh, we have to see that. Yeah, so much, in fact, that the director is credited as Alan Smithy. uh, (laughs) Who directed it originally? He's on the Wikipedia page, but he's credited as Alan Smithy on there. So yeah, you should have seen the DVD box. It looks hilarious. (laughs) It looks a bit like Birdemic. Oh, fantastic. Um, yeah. That's well, right. Probably on my a bigger budget, yeah. But yeah, they were hired to direct this film and through the course of two four hour story conferences came up with the initial story. And this is the other thing as well, obviously based on their criticisms, the main difference between Endor and Caravan is it actually has some semblance of a proper story. Yes. It has things happening in it. Well, even just skipping through it, before this episode, I pretty much skipped through the entire 90 minute film in about yeah. 15 minutes. So much more happens in Battle for Endor than anything that happens in Caravan of Courage. Yeah, because this is a film that actually takes inspiration from other things mm. outside the Star Wars universe, other than just being an Ewoks film. It actually takes other things from here. So during the discussion the original intent of the Wheat Brothers was to make a film about the whole Tawani family Mm -hmm. but several days before the meeting Lucas had watched the film Heidi with his daughter and uh, he came across the idea of just taking the girl from the Tawani family making her an orphan and having her team up with an old hermit and then from that the Wheat Brothers looked into films that they liked like kids adventure films that they liked from the past like Swiss Family Robinson yeah and Seventh Voyage of Sinbad and through that the idea of the Marauders came up the credit is Marauders in the film but in the expanded universe gubbins that people write to justify <laughs> these things afterwards they're credited as the Sanyasins yeah they're a a unique breed of alien that's just for this particular film. Uh, I think they work quite well, actually. They look quite good. They look more sort of Star Trek-y than Star Wars. But, yeah. Um, it's almost like this lo-fi skeletal look about them, Yeah, actually. yeah, you say it reminded you a little bit of Army of Darkness. Yeah, oh, definitely. Yeah, oh, yeah it does it look really a bit does. like Army of Darkness, actually. I know Army of Darkness came later, but yeah. it, it does have that feel to it. And they came up with the idea of these marauders. And just for these few basic story points that they come up with, um, it already has many many more ideas going for it than caravan Mm. (laughs) in which is just literally kids looking for the parents yes and that's about it really whereas um with this film you've got three different groups of people that are trying to leave endor you've got uh obviously the tawani family still trying to repair their spaceship 
got the Marauders who have yeah. been here for about a hundred years, and they're trying to escape, but they've obviously they've almost forgotten how space travel works. So they think power source is some sort of form of magic, and they just want it to work for them, but no one yeah. can make it work for them. And then yeah, you've got Noah which is uh, Wilford Brimley's character, who has been stuck on there for a long time himself. And it does feel like a um, a very much a small-scale film, but it does feel like a proper film. Yeah. Shit happens. Good. In it. <laughs> so, like, yeah, you, you found that, that just stuff happens in it. And, um, yeah, it's, it's funny in a way that fans of these Ewok films or people who are interested in Star Warsy things outside of the main films, they do actually come down on quite hard on this film, mainly because of the first 10 minutes, because obviously what it does, the way that this film works is that it doesn't just introduce the character of Sindel, which is the only surviving character from the original film. It doesn't present the reason why she's an orphan off screen. It actually does form the basis of pretty much the first act of the film. Yeah. Because at the start of the film, everything is fine. And then by the end of the first act, she's lost everybody apart from yeah. Wicket. It almost feels like if there ever was a third Ewok movie, this is almost like the Empire Strikes Back of the yeah, Ewok it is. films. Yeah. It's the darkest this moment. This is the darkest second all chapter. Is lost yeah. moment. Yeah, it is a much darker film for that because the character of Sindel is dealing with the uh, quite upfront loss of her parents and she basically has to deal with the people that are responsible for that as well. They're only here because they're not natives of this planet yeah. and they actively disrupt the harmony that's in this rather idyllic place. Well, that's the thing with Battle for Endor. At least it has characters that are dealing with something by the sounds of it. Whereas Caravan of Courage, the only real character arc there is in the film, is this mace character who's Mm. Sindel's uh, brother. And he's going through this thing where the film's about his courage and about him finding his courage because he starts off as a wimp and then by the end of it, he's some action hero. Mm. But it's another case of him telling us that yeah. rather than showing. Yeah, yeah. And that's a problem that we go on to have in a really big way with the prequels. Yeah. And it's funny in a way that this film doesn't suffer from those things. It no. decides to show you up front what's going on and what these people are going through. I mean, they do get killed, obviously, ultimately. But um, it does feel like even in their very brief appearance, the Tawani family come across better yes. in this film than they do in the original film where they're in it all the way through. Yeah. It just feels like they're stepping up their game a lot on this film in all areas. I think it has to do with the filmmakers that they're bringing on board. Yeah. They're of a different level, really. Yeah, I mean, the effects are much better. The story's better. The script is better. The performances are better. They've managed to get better actors. You've actually got some name actors in this as well. Yeah. I mean, it's not a brilliant film. I would never call it a brilliant film, but it's definitely a competently made film that I enjoyed watching whilst watching it. It seems that The Battle for Endor is perhaps the film that I wish Caravan of Courage was, really. And even flicking through, I do wish that was the film I had seen twice (laughs) rather than Caravan of Courage. Yeah, because, yeah, it definitely builds off that. It definitely learns the lessons. Out of all the TV movies that Lucasfilm has made, this is the pinnacle. In a way, it is really like viewing a proper film that happened to be on TV. Yeah. It just fits right in there with that 1980s fantasy sci-fi genre. Part of me is wishing that they just went off and did make a cinematic spin-off film with these characters rather than relegate it to TV and really give it a cinematic budget that would allow them to explore this world on a much bigger scale. Yeah, I mean, it definitely had a bigger budget than Caravan. Yeah. Not entirely sure that. I know Caravan had a budget of three million. I think it's probably more like five or six. Mm -hmm. But yeah, they definitely do more with the world. We see a lot more of the world in this than you would do in Caravan. The world looks very much like Californian countryside. Yeah, there's still a bit of that in there. But at least there's a lot of more, um, like, matte extensions. Yeah, there's a lot more matte extensions. You see the mountains off in the distance, and, yeah, there's big clifftop faces, and and castles, and all sorts of things. Yeah, there's lots of... There's a lot more varied environs in this film. And, yeah, there's a lot more Star Wars in it as well. You've got a lot more, sort of, laser gun battles. And also a touch of E.T. Yeah, definitely. Especially in the end scene. Yeah. And we've got a lot more new characters as well in terms of characters that actually do things. Like you've got the character of Teak, who's another native of Endor. And yeah, you've got the Marauders themselves. And then you've got the witch, Sharal, who's played by Sean Phillips, who is a knight sister. I think this is, again, all retroactive stuff, but she's meant to be a knight sister who is a, uh, like a female faction of the Sith. Yeah, from what I've seen, she had some shape-shifting properties as well. Yeah, yeah. There's a lot more sort of like straight-up magic in this film as well. It was definitely more along the sort of dry run for Willow. She's uh, definitely she, kind she of, feels like she's um, a character from Willow, from what I've yeah, seen. Yeah, she's almost like a prototype Jean Marsh yeah. from Willow. Willow, you idiot! Sorry. <laughs> 
And um, yeah, she has like shape-shifting abilities and there's a magic ring and we have the castle yes. as well. It's very Black Cauldron-y as well. Mm-hmm. And it actually has a proper villain that has some presence and he's in the film quite a lot as well. So he's not peripheral like the one in Caravan is. Yeah. They are a little bit two-dimensional, these villains. They are very lot sort of... Rawr. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> but uh, they are quite fun at the same time. So... I've already talked about the performances in Caravan of Courage and that mm. they were very kind of unmemorable, but they weren't really given much to work with in terms of the yeah. script. How were the performances in Battle for Endor? Like, I'm not going to say that they're excellent or anything like that, but they're certainly competent. Warwick Davis's Wicket is great again. And in a funny way, and this is another point of controversy and point of dispute as to where these films come in the Star Wars timeline, the fact that Wicket speaks English in this film yes. and they obviously starts to learn it in the first film. But I actually think it works for this film. I have no idea who actually does the voice of Wicket. I don't think it's Warwick Davis anyway. No, it doesn't sound like Warwick Davis. Yeah, it does give it that kind of E.T.-ish vibe because it is very E.T. speak. Yeah, and from what I've seen, again, I watched the ending of the film. Mm. There's a very kind of reverse E.T. moment. Yeah, yeah. Where it's um, Sindel. the human leaves. Yeah, the human leaves <laughs> yeah. the planet, leaving the Ewoks behind. Yeah, and as a very, very young child actress, Aubrey Miller is fine as Sindel. I mean... I don't really feel you could get any better performance out of a child actor at that age, Mm -hmm. especially the kind of stuff that she's got to deal with in the film, the kind of emotional stuff she's got to deal with. Let's face it, she's no Jake Lloyd. No. I mean, actually, I'd have to say that her performance in this is probably better than pretty much all the other child actors in the prequels combined. Yeah. Just because she's got some all right dialogue to deal with, there is still some sort of straight on the nose childish dialogue in there, which is a little bit embarrassing. And that's not to rag on the child actors that are in the prequels. It's more so that they were simply the wrong choices. Yeah. When there were better choices out there at oh, the yeah. time. Oh, yeah. You only have to watch the Star Wars Episode One making of documentary to see that they went with a completely wrong kid. Yeah. And I can't help but feel sorry for Jake Lloyd. Oh, definitely. After that film, because none of it was his fault. Yeah, yeah. It was completely out of his hands. It was the fault of the filmmakers. Yeah. He was the wrong choice for the role. George Lucas should have seen that. Many people around George Lucas could see that, but there was no changing his mind. It's quite unfortunate, really. Yeah, and I don't think Aubrey Miller, she didn't do anything beyond this film. This is her final film role. Mm -hmm. But yeah, she does an all right job, considering her age and everything. And um, I think the directors handle her better than the previous director did. Yeah, well, in Caravan of Courage, she doesn't actually do much but lie about. She's ill for most of the film. Yeah. She seems to be... A lot more active as a character. Yeah, whereas I wouldn't say she carries the film in this sense, but she's in a lot of it. Yeah. And does kind of work well with Wicket. I mean, Wicket kind of definitely carries the film, Mm -hmm. but she does work quite well alongside him. And she's quite effective at the end when she has to leave. Uh, Kind of one of those things where I think the director's genuinely upset a child to get that reaction out of him. It looks like that way uh, because he looks like he's genuinely crying. And uh, yeah, there is quite a... A dramatic change in terms of the kind of actors they get for this this particular film compared to the previous one because I don't think there's any known people in the previous one. No, not no. at all. So yeah, the, I mean, the, this has Wilford Brimley in it. Yeah, uh, yeah, Battle for Endor. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you've got Eric Walker. He's the only person that returns from the first film apart yeah. from Obi Miller, and he's literally in it for about a minute before he gets killed. Yeah, and the father's played by a different actor. They kind of upgraded a little bit, so they um, went to Paul Gleason. My favourite actor for swearing. Yeah, a.k.a. Dwayne T. Robinson. <laughs> yeah, and he plays the father very briefly. He's only at about five minutes of the film. And he gets killed as well. The mother is completely off screen. You just see her ass mm-hmm. uh, lying down in the grass. So she's already dead. But yeah, in terms of the other performances, yeah, you've got Wilford Brimley, fresh from his role in Cocoon. Mm-hmm. You can kind of tell that he doesn't really want to be there. But even so, he still lifts the film quite a lot just due to his general just skill as an actor. I'd imagine this is not a role that he's particularly fond of or yeah. would ever want to look back on. But he um, adds his own charm to it and he does work quite well as this hermitic character. There's actually quite an interesting story here and this is probably explains quite a lot why he doesn't look like he really wants to be in the film. I'd say about a third of this film, I mean, all the scenes that he's involved in are actually not directed by the Wheat Brothers. They're actually directed by the acting second unit director, Joe Johnston. Yes. Because... For whatever reason, and I'm not sure entirely what what it was, but Wilford Brimley didn't get along with the Wheat Brothers at all. So what they had to do was bring in a surrogate director to film those scenes. So that's basically where Joe Johnston was brought in and directed all of Wilford Brimley's scenes. Well, diabetes does make people cranky, you know. Yeah. <laughs> Since 1977. <laughs> but... um. I'd actually say that probably helps the film because you've probably got an even more competent director handling some of the key sequences in the film. 
So, um, on the whole, yeah, the, the performances, like I said, they're not brilliant. I mean, there's no... It's a TV movie. Yeah, it's a TV movie. But for a TV movie, it ain't half bad. Yeah. Yeah, the same goes for the effects. Yeah, well, that's what I want to ask you about next is in regards to the filmmaking side of things because I was talking about the effects for Caravan of Courage, which... There are some half-decent effects. You do get a sense that it's a foot too far in the old world of stop-motion mm. when um, go-motion was very much a thing of the time yeah. and an improvement on stop-motion yeah. in terms of integrating live-action and these special effects together. Yeah. So I was just want to ask, is that improved with Battle of Endor? How does it look? What's the filmmaking well, like? Because it certainly seems to be an upgrade in terms of the people that yeah. they've got involved. They are still using stop-motion, and the only reason they're doing that, and this is the last Lucasfilm project that extensively used stop motion yeah. before they completely switched to go motion the only reason they didn't use go motion is it was just too expensive for the budget that they had because i think they'd only really used it once before or a couple of times before they'd used it in jedi a little bit but mainly in dragon slayer yeah that's the first proper go motion film but i think at the time because it was completely new it was still far too expensive to implement for this kind of film because and when you look at go motion that you basically have to create uh, mechanical rigs for these puppets to go on yeah because the idea of go motion is that the creatures are actually moving when the yeah, shutter frame it's, is it's on the so movement it gives you the motion blur. yeah, yeah. It's much more time-consuming to do that, and yeah, just much more expensive, so they had to rely on stop-motion. And even though you can tell it's stop-motion, I'd have to say that it's still quite nice to look at in this film. Mm -hmm. The main thing that they get right is the compositing and the lighting on the stop-motion figures is spot-on. So even though they have this kind of herky-jerky feel, in a weird way, it still feels like they belong in, in the landscape. World, yeah. So even though you know it's a special effect, it's not offensive to look at because it does feel like they do belong to that world yeah and i know that i was saying that the previous film it does have a foot too far in the old world of filmmaking but i do like stop motion effects and i do like the idea that you can see the artist's thumbprints on this creature that they're making there's something endearing about that that yeah. a lot of work has gone into this i think with cgi you don't see the work as much no even in terms of um, shoddy effects you don't see the work that's been put into a shoddy effect in CGI, whereas you can in physical effects. Yeah, definitely. Even in bad physical effects, you can see the clear work that's been yeah, put into you, achieving you, that. You can see the craft that's been yeah. put into it. And going back to sort of Lucas's experimental nature, they were able to use some new techniques on these films. They were actually able to hone some new techniques that they were developing and use these films as a testing ground, especially this one in particular, because we were mentioning before about there's a lot more matte shots in this film than there was in the previous one. Yeah. They actually came up with a completely new technique of photographing these matte shots, which they called uh, latent image matting. And what this involved was when they were shooting the film, they would actually physically block off a part of the lens, the part they wanted to have the matte shot be on, they'd actually draw it out actually on the actual original shot. So when you actually got the film back, that area of the film was unexposed. And then what they would do when they went to shoot the matte painting, they rewound that film back. And then what they did, they blocked out the exposed area and then shot the unexposed area. So it meant that the two areas were combined on film but in first-generation form, so it meant that there was no loss in quality in the composite. There's no degradation of no, film quality. No, which you could the... always tell yes. sometimes in uh, it, They always shots. look darker. You can obviously sort of several pieces of film, Yeah, and you, you can usually tell. With this, you, you can't. Yeah, you know? and the, I say the match shots are pretty good, actually. Considering it is a TV movie again, they are very high quality. I mean, to be honest, the resources that these films, or this film in particular, had, and when you think about it being a TV movie made in the 1980s, are quite astounding. It must have looked quite unbelievable when you saw it for the first time. Yeah. And I think, as well, just going on the fact that this is a TV movie, and this goes for both films, the score, the music for the film is pretty good as well. Yeah, by uh, Peter Bernstein. Yeah, son of Elmer Bernstein. Yeah. Yeah, his music's actually really good. I was really surprised, because it's all full orchestra stuff. There's no synthesizers or anything. You could easily go into that area, especially at this time of the 80s, with synthesizer scores and uh, you know mm. saving money and things like that. Yeah, but definitely. No, they, they go all out and record a proper full orchestral score for both these films. Yeah, that's one of the few things I actually liked about Caravan of Courage was the music. Again, it's it's not John Williams, but no. it holds its own. Yeah, It kind of elevates a few moments in the film. It's not the best score I've ever heard, but it's certainly not the worst. It's, no. it's actually quite enjoyable. No, and you'll actually hear a little bit of that at the end as well. Yeah, and it's kind of a shame in a way that he's never really got beyond writing things for TV programs or yeah. TV movies. I mean, his main line of work seemed to be the TV version of 21 Jump Street and uh, episodes of Stargate. 
and a couple of cues for things like Wild Wild West for his dad. Yeah. And he never seemed to have made that jump into full feature films, which is a shame because it kind of it felt like he really had some potential here. There's promise. Yeah, there's, there's promise with these scores that mm. this composer could go on to more. Yeah, definitely. And it, it seems for one reason or another that promise has not been fulfilled. No, no. And I guess that brings me to my last question, really, about Battle for Endor and Ewok Adventure. <laughs> What conclusions did you come to with this film? What would you say overall is your feeling about Balfrendo? Because it seems that you have had a much more positive experience yeah. with this film than I had with my film. Yeah, It's very much a competent film and it's quite enjoyable. There's some really nice sequences in it. I mean, one of my favourite sequences is the little card switch with the, those two card players and they, in order to escape this jail, Teak puts a card up this guy's sleeve. The other guy thinks he's cheating, so they shoot each other. So there's some quite yeah, little clever a, yeah. things in there. And it was really uh, quite a lot of fun watching it for the most part. I mean, it does drag a little bit in the middle. But yeah, it's competently made. And my main thought of it is like, yeah, this is of some quality. It feels like they've really tried making a proper film. Even though it's a TV movie, they've really made almost a theatrically worthy film based on this Ewok slash Endor world. Mm-hmm. And they've made a pretty good stab of it. And they've actually done some things in it and taken a few risks. Because really, what we were talking about before, this is kind of like the Alien 3 of the Ewok yes, films. Yes, it is. Yeah. <laughs> it, it completely <laughs> undoes what the last film did. Yeah. yeah. But that's one of the things I really like about it, that it decides to do that. I think it sets the film up as being its own separate adventure. You can... It's an instant acknowledge that what they did with the previous film wasn't as good. So yeah. they're going to do something entirely different with this film straight from the get-go. Yeah, I mean, uh, I think the Prometheus sequel is going to basically do what this did as well. Because, yeah, you can just watch this film without having to have seen the other one. Oh, how I wish I had. Because, to be honest, the, the basic premise of Caravan is so slight that you can almost just assume what happened oh, definitely. before yeah. you even start the film. Because it's pretty clear that they've crashed on this planet and they're just trying to get off the planet. Yeah. And they've befriended these Ewoks. And that's all you really need to know. That's all that happens in and, Caravan um, of Courage for 90 minutes. Yeah. So it basically makes this 90 minutes look uh, stupendous in comparison. <laughs> I mean, again, it's not perfect. This is not a, a perfect film. So if it's you, not a home it, run. Yeah, so if you do go watching this film and thinking I've made it look like a, some five-star film, then you are going to be gravely disappointed. But I think for what they had and what they had to work with, they've made a pretty decent job of it. Okay, and so this would normally be the point where we would talk about the stats and facts of a certain film, but since we have both watched different films, I guess we've both got to provide our different stats and facts to see if there are any clues as to why these films have been forgotten. Now, first up for Caravan of Courage, I have the Rotten Tomatoes score because obviously we're not going to be talking about the box office because these films were made for TV. Mm -hmm. So I have the Rotten Tomatoes score, which is... 27% (laughs) and that's with an average rating of 4.3 out of 10 and after 11 reviews Caravan of Courage and Ewok Adventure is not very fondly looked upon by critics and I actually have a quote from Time Out magazine that say short on action by Lucasfilm standards stuffed with toothy teddies which lack the charm of phase one gremlins or the wit of any Muppet and for some reason this reviewer blames Thatcher (laughs) I mean, that, that's saying, honestly, that's, he says, I blame Thatcher. That's wow. literally a line from the review. I had to use it because I just, I was like, <laughs> that is certainly a review that's a product of wow. the 80s. I can't disagree with him. It is definitely short on action. I thought you were going to say, I really blame Thatcher. I thought, oh, I, I blame Thatcher with... for everything. I'm, we're, we're northern boys here. <laughs> definitely. Thatcher gets to blame for most things, <laughs> even the weather. So I, I can't disagree with this critical response to the film. Mm. That's unfortunately all, all I have to talk about in terms of the stats and facts. So it's now over to Battle of Endor, where you have an absolute wealth of stats and oh, facts. Well, I have even less than you. <laughs> um, there's a couple of things I can probably talk about in the aftermath of this film, because, yeah, it was released as the Sunday night movie mm-hmm. on the 24th of November, 85, and yours was 24th of November, 84. Yeah. They didn't have that much of an extended life beyond that other than the fact that they did get video releases now. Battle for Ender got released via MGM UA video in the UK on in 1987. Yeah. And uh, in the US uh, in video and on Laserdisc ah. in 1990. It also did have a very brief theatrical run in UK and Germany. I think it, Caravan had a run in Germany also. It did, yes, it did. Yeah. And New Zealand. Yeah. And it even managed to get a... Uh, a video trailer on another video, which is ironically the UK rental version of Spaceballs, <laughs> a trailer for Battle for Endor. 
Yeah, which, uh, which everybody knows is a great spoof of Star Wars. Yeah, which yeah. is the trailer that we're using today for this episode. Yep. And that's basically where it ends, because the video that I saw was the 87 video release. I didn't get a Rotten Tomatoes figure, because there was only one review on the website for yeah. it. So that, It was positive. It was a fresh one, yeah. yeah. So it wasn't enough to garner a percentage, because it would have been 100%. But, I think uh, one of the things that we have to discuss in terms of both of these films together, in terms of response, is that on IMDb, both of these films are rated 5.5 out of 10. Yeah. And honestly, I do not think that they should share the same rating. One, I think 5.5 is too high a rating for Caravan of Courage. This is a film that deserves around about three or four. Yeah. It's not even a so bad it's good film. It's just dull. I think what might have happened is that when these films were released on DVD, they were released as a pair. Ah. People may be judging it based on them as a whole. Yeah. Rather than just one film individually, which is why they've got exactly the same rating. Yeah. Because without a doubt, Battle for Endor is a much better film than Caravan of Courage. Just by what I saw, just yeah. by the 15 minutes that I saw, it's it's so much better. There's so much more that's actually happening. Yeah. And it's more deserving of that 5.5 out of 10. I mean, it's probably almost a 6. Yeah. But yeah, 5.5 is probably quite a good place to put mm-hmm. it. I mean, yeah. yeah, it's not a brilliant film, but it's it's competently made and it's quite enjoyable at times and definitely adds more to the world of Endor than caravan did and the other thing was there was a a star wars fan poll in 2001 where they were asked to rate both caravan of courage and battle for endor and battle for endor came out on top quite clearly Uh, that was voted the best of the ewok films by quite a long way so among star wars fandom it is generally noted that battle for endor is the superior film to caravan it's definitely known as being the best lucasfilm tv movie Mm -hmm. yeah and then that's about it because beyond that they've really been forgotten yeah i mean all that's really left for me to do is ask the two questions first up are you any closer to understanding why battle for endor has been forgotten i'm gonna answer the question as to why caravan of courage (laughs) has been forgotten yeah yeah i think i've already explained my opinion of caravan of courage which is just simply that it's too little butter spread thinly over bread, you know, yeah, yeah. Uh, to use a quote from Bilbo Baggins. I can see why it's been forgotten, because mm. it's just dull. And it does ring through as a cheap attempt to sell merchandise and to keep these Ewoks in the public eye. I can say I'm not even that down on the Ewoks as characters. Yeah. Return of the Jedi I actually really like as a film. It's got one of my favourite moments in the whole Star Wars series in mm. it. But as a film, it's certainly the Star Wars film of the original trilogy with the most problems. And I don't believe that the Ewoks are an example of all that's wrong with that film. So I'm not judging it because of that. I'm judging it because just as a film on its own, it's profoundly dull. Yeah, definitely. Yeah, I say in direct contrast to that, I feel that I'm not quite sure why Endor has been forgotten because it is... um, in a way, a lot better than its TV movie origins. Yeah. It definitely is more in line with those 1980s theatrically released fantasy movies. I mean, it's better than Krull. Yeah. <laughs> you know yeah. what I mean? It's more enjoyable to watch than Krull. It's actually got more convincing special effects than Krull, considering it's, <laughs> that Krull's budget was one of the most expensive films ever made yeah. at the time. Yeah, I mean, you know, it's all right. I'd say it's not brilliant. It's got a couple of lull moments. I mean, there's a couple of cringy bits of dialogue. The um, villains are, although they're quite fun, they are quite stupid. Yeah, uh, which is quite f- funny at times. But um, this is more of a genuine attempt to make a proper film version of the Ewoks yeah. rather than just being a blatant cash grab that Caravan is. And it seems like there's an actual adventure in Battle for Endor. Yeah, yeah there's definitely place. some sort of proper agenda or a proper attempt to make a full-length movie out of this idea. Kind of a shame that not that many people know about it because it, it definitely has some worth to it. I mean, if you did like Willow, I mean, it's not as good as Willow. Yeah. But it's kind of part of that world. And if you enjoyed things like the special effects or certain aspects of Willow, you may enjoy certain things in this film. Yeah. And finally, first up, is Caravan of Courage one of the best of the Forgotten movies? Or is it nothing more than Bantha Fodder? Well, Poodoo. Uh, Poodoo. <laughs> well, yeah, obviously, I, I, Caravan yeah. of Courage for me is the best Forgotten movie. How was Battle for Endor for you? Was it <sighs> best of the Forgotten or is it simply best Forgotten? Oh, this is really difficult. I've only got myself to back myself up. I know. See, I'm far more comfortable, in my opinion, because it was legitimately bad. Yeah. You seem like you had a much more enjoyable experience. Yeah, I'm much more up on this film. But I'm not sure whether I'm going to be hounded for calling this Best of the Forgotten (laughs) by people, because it's really difficult. I think... Use the force, Andy. Look inside yourself. I think this is Best of the Forgotten just. Yeah. Because... 
I feel the intentions of the filmmakers, again, like we were talking with Tank Girl and all that kind of stuff, the intention of the filmmakers was much more honest and they got something out of it. Yeah. There's a, a genuine film there. It, you know, it's got nothing to hold against the original trilogy. But mm-hmm. for me personally, I had much more enjoyment watching that than I did watching any of the Star Wars prequels. Yeah. Well, we are judging these films on a separate standard as well. Yeah. Like, we have to keep reiterating, these are made-for-TV kids' films. Mm. And I think you have to judge it by that standard rather than the standard that we normally set for these kind of big-budget cinematic films that we normally review. Yeah. And I think by on that standard, it seems like it is a pass. Yeah. But having said that, going back to the prequels, I had more fun and more feeling watching this film yeah. than I did watching <laughs> any of the Star Wars prequels. Because mm. uh, there's nothing in those films there's no worth at all no. it's all wasted talent on nothingness yeah even the last one that people try and hold up as being the best one it's all nothingness yeah whereas at least this tries to do something this is a film that it does have some problems it's not perfect by any means but it does succeed in a lot of areas especially in it being a, a kid's fantasy film so uh yeah i think it's best have gotten but yeah only just because i do feel that some people may go what the fuck are you talking about <laughs> but um i definitely had fun watching it anyway that's the thing that matters most mm. and that's all we have time for on today's episode of best forgotten movies be sure to like share and subscribe you can also find us on facebook and twitter at b4 movies so please do get in touch with suggestions for possible episodes also we would really like it if our listeners could go on itunes and please rate our podcast because that will boost our popularity yep (laughs) unfortunately andy and i will be taking a christmas break but we'll be back in the new year with brand new episodes in the meantime have a happy holiday and here's hoping the force awakens is everything we want it to be and more yeah but for now it's bye from myself and cheerio from andy cheerio and a happy new year happy new year thanks for listening (laughs) 